Well, there are very few things in life that are as debilitating and torturous as living without hope. When the light is gone, when a person believes that he knows the ending of his story, and the ending is a bad one, when hope is abandoned, life becomes virtually unbearable. Consider for a moment those who have been legally sentenced to death and reside on death row. Your typical death row inmate spends upwards of 10 years awaiting his execution, and sometimes more than 20 years, which is hard to fathom. One article I read this week says that death row inmates are generally isolated from other prisoners, excluded from prison educational and employment programs, sharply restricted in terms of visitation and exercise, spending as many as 23 hours a day alone in their cells. Now add to these miserable conditions the painfully slow march of time toward the fateful day of execution, and how sometimes the scheduled execution is unexpectedly delayed so that even a certain knowledge of when the painful isolation will end uh, is, is not possible. And the agonizing hopelessness of the situation slowly drives people insane. They call it death row syndrome. It's that experience unique to, to inmates on death row where life just simply completely loses any semblance of hope. And the human spirit simply can't survive in the absence of hope. God intended it that way. He made us that way, that hope keeps us moving. Hope presses us onward. And so when hope is gone, when hope cannot be seen, even a flicker of light at the end of the tunnel, so to speak, our hearts just can't handle it. Our souls just are crushed beneath that weight. Now, I don't think anyone in this room is in a situation that's nearly as uh, stark uh, or uh, hopeless as that of a death row inmate. I know that's an extreme example, to be sure. But I'm willing to bet that you've experienced hopelessness at some level. You've awaited good news that never came. You've suffered through a treasured relationship falling apart and wondered if there was any hope of reconciliation. You've watched a loved, one, a loved one deteriorate and die, clinging feverishly to hope that seemed to slip through your fingers like sand. Perhaps you've been so aware of your own sin and, and brokenness that the thought of God forgiving you, accepting you, and loving you seemed too absurd to even think about. Maybe. You're in that place right now, today. Whatever situation you find yourself in, maybe hope has eluded you and you're fighting for every breath, for every trip out of bed and down the hall, for every next step. Well, I've got good news. God sees your mess. He sees your despair and he's made provision for you. Easter is all about hope. Easter is where, as I've said the past few weeks, Easter is where the power of God and the love of Christ meet us at the point of our deepest brokenness 
and forge a pathway toward restoration and wholeness. Easter is not just theoretical. It's not impractical. It's not just about something that happened 2,000 years ago and we write it in books and we hang some ideas around that reality. No, it meets us right where we are in the midst of our brokenness and our pain and our hopelessness. In the last few weeks, we've looked at several of Jesus' closest followers and how an encounter with the risen Jesus after his death and resurrection changed everything for them. So we, we talked about Peter and how the shame and guilt that he carried because of his denial of Jesus was met, was covered with forgiveness and grace from the Lord. We talked about Thomas and how his doubt and unbelief, his refusal to believe until he had seen uh, the risen Jesus with his own eyes, was answered by a display of Jesus fully alive. He mercifully comes into his presence and says, here I am, touch the wounds, look and see and believe. We looked at Paul last week, who went from hostility and oppression and persecution of the church to one of the pioneers of Christian missions and the sort of first church planter, uh, if you will, just because he met Jesus, was interrupted by Jesus on his way to Damascus to arrest Christians. And Jesus appeared to him on the road and he says, why are you persecuting me? And everything changed for Paul. Well, the whole premise of this series and of this message today is that the same resurrection grace is available to us today. Easter is really good news for us because in Jesus' triumph over death, he has provided resurrection grace to restore our hope. If you have a copy of the scriptures, I'm going to invite you to turn to the book of 1 Peter. It's toward the back of the New Testament. There's only a few short books uh, after it. First Peter. And in verses 3 through 9 of the first chapter of First Peter, we're going to find a beautiful and powerful description of the hope that Easter affords us. I'm going to read verses 3 through 9 of 1 Peter chapter 1. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice 
with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Easter is about the living hope that Jesus Christ has provided for us through his resurrection. So we're just going to walk through this passage together and draw out some of the ways that this hope impacts us and can affect our daily living as we go from point A to point B. Peter starts just by praising God. He says in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he praises God because all of this is his doing. All the good news that he's about to unveil to his readers, the salvation that is stored up for us, has been secured by God's plan and work and by Jesus' obedience and life and death and resurrection. He says there in verse 3, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. What part did you play in your birth? Did you tell your mom and dad what day you'd like to have as your birthday? Did you get to make any requests about your eye color or your height or where you live? Of course not. Someone else causes you, caused you to be born. And it's the same way with our spiritual lives. If you are trusting in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and a relationship with him, you have God himself to thank for all of that because it's his work from start to finish. Salvation is his doing. He planned it. He provided what was necessary for it. And even the faith to believe and to follow him is a gift from him. Jesus said, unless you are born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. And then he compared uh, that birth, that spiritual birth to the wind, which blows, and, and you can see its effects, but you can't tell where it's going or where it came from, and you don't see it, and you don't control it, and the Holy Spirit and the spiritual birth is the very same way. He has caused you to be born again, and so he starts just by saying, praise God, praise God that he has done this for us in his mercy. So what have we been born again to? You have been born again to a living hope. Now, what does that mean? What is the living hope that we've been born again to? Is this hope just sort of a doe-eyed optimism? Should Christians just be a walking encyclopedia of happy-sounding cliches? The glass isn't half empty, it's half full. Don't cry because it's over, smile because it happened. Reach for the moon. Even if you miss, you'll land among the stars. Is that what being a Christian is about? Just slapping a smile and an a inspirational poster on your face and just walking about as though everything's hunky-dory and there's no problems and everything's going to work out okay in the end? Is, is that what this hope means? Well, I don't mean to be too down on optimism, but I think that that's often how we tend to think about hope. And that's manifestly not what Peter is talking about here in these verses. This isn't just a a wishful thinking, like, boy, I sure hope that this works out. That's not what he's talking about. We've been born again to a living hope, 
a living hope through the resurrection of Christ. And this being born again, this rebirth, is better than just a new start. Sometimes we even talk about, we'll say that in Christ you can have a new start. And that's good news in itself, but it doesn't go far enough. Because you don't just get a new start, you have a guaranteed finish. That's what Peter is telling us in these verses, is that the salvation that is being stored up for you is being kept, and you will surely obtain it through faith. So this rebirth is better than just starting over. It's a guaranteed finish. You'll make it to the finish line. And it's better than just a second chance. And in fact, it's not really a chance at all because its outcome is secure. Because God knows what he's doing when he calls somebody into salvation. And when he applies by faith the life and death and resurrection of Christ to their account and counts them righteous. It's not just, we'll give you another try. It's start to finish, God is saving us all the way through. And so this living hope is much better and deeper than just a wishful thinking. Just, I sure hope that this thing is not a hoax. I sure hope that Jesus really did rise from the dead or that heaven really is real. I hope that that's true. That's not the kind of hope we're talking about. We're talking about a certain reality, the assurance of what God has done, what he has wrought from start to finish. And this living hope is ours because of Easter. He's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Here's something I recently wrote in a blog for our website. I said, we all know that this world is broken. Far too often things don't work out the way we dream. Doors close, relationships crumble, bodies fail, friends let us down. Our sense of safety erodes in light of violence surrounding. There's no shortage of stories with tragic endings in our world and in our own lives. But it occurs to me that even though we know and experience such brokenness, the eyes of faith refuse to see a lost cause. No closed door is the last possible door to investigate. No relationship is so broken that it can't be repaired. No sinner is beyond the reach of grace and redemption. Even the sickness that ends a life doesn't have the final word for the Jesus follower. There's always life on the other side. That's the living hope that we're talking about. Because of Easter, we have confidence that God is storing something up for us that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Praise God for this living hope. So, here's three things, I think, from this passage that this living hope means, or ways that it fleshes itself out in our lives. Number one, Easter secures an imperishable inheritance. Those are big words. Easter secures an imperishable inheritance. We see that in verses 4 and 5. He says, we've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Verse 4, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. 
So you've been born again to an inheritance. This living hope points us to an inheritance that is being kept by God in heaven. Not just hiding it away, but guarding it, protecting it, preserving it for you. Your inheritance, if you're a follower of Jesus, the future that God has prepared for you is secure and protected and guarded. I get the image of a mom who's purchased the perfect Christmas present for her child. She's wrapped it beautifully. She's kept it hidden and secure. She's plotted how uh, her son is going to find the package. She's taking video of him opening it so that she can replay the delight on her son's face when the gift is finally revealed in all its glory. I think that's how our Heavenly Father feels about the gift that He has prepared for you. The final full, complete salvation that's being stored up for you and guarded until the moment it can be revealed. Get the picture that God is just eagerly waiting for the opportunity to show you in its fullness. Here's what I've promised you all along. And what's this gift like? What is this inheritance that he's talking about? Well, verse 4 tells us that it's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Theologian F.W. Baer summarizes it this way. Untouched by death, unstained by sin, and unimpaired by time. When's the last time you got a gift that didn't go bad? A toy that didn't break? A shirt that doesn't fit anymore? A pair of socks that doesn't already have holes in them? A concert or sports event or trip whose memory hasn't already begun to fade. The inheritance that belongs to every saint, this salvation being kept by God for us and ready to be revealed is sure and true because Jesus is alive. How have we been born again to this living hope? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He lives to secure it. He lives to keep it. He lives to preserve that inheritance for us. And the book of Hebrews even tells us that he lives to make intercession for us. That is to pray for us, to advocate for us before the Father. And so because Jesus is alive, we know that this journey that leads to the final future inheritance of the saints is secure and sure. Easter means that the ending of your story, if you're a follower of Jesus, will be beautiful and good and glorious beyond imagination. 1 Corinthians 15.26 tells us that the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And on Easter Sunday 2,000 years ago, it happened. Jesus walked out of the grave and destroyed death and obtained for us an eternal home with him. Easter secures an imperishable inheritance. Second way that the living hope of Easter meets us is that it helps us endure seasons of suffering. Not supposed to talk about suffering on Easter. Easter's all about life and flowers and bunnies, right? Well, that's not the world we live in, it's not the reality we experience. 
And of course, as we've observed before, Easter didn't happen without Good Friday. There's no resurrection if there's not a death first. So Peter turns his attention in verses 6 and 7 to their suffering. He says, in this, that is in this inheritance that's coming, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, much of the suffering of Peter's readers was due to targeted persecution of the Christian church. In other words, their suffering was coming as a result of their faithful witness for Christ. As they spoke of Christ and lived out kingdom values, the pagan culture in which they were situated responded with hostility. And in our place and time, this kind of persecution is less pronounced, both because uh, we Christians, I think, in America have often displayed what Scott McKnight calls a lack of nerve to challenge our contemporary world with the message of the cross, but also because our culture's hostility toward Christianity just hasn't reached the pitch that it had in the first century Roman world. I think it's on the rise, but it's not there yet. However, I think the same encouragement that Peter gives to these suffering Christians, persecuted Christians, can be applied to the suffering and hardships that we face simply because we live in a fallen world. Indeed, Peter says that his readers have been grieved by various trials, which seems to indicate more suffering than only direct persecution may be in view here. So in other words, life in a fallen world, surrounded by sinners and wrestling with sin inside us, is hard. It hurts. It has a way of squeezing out our hope and turning us into cynics and skeptics. The famed writer for the New Yorker uh, in the early 20th century, Catherine S. White, spent every fall in her garden meticulously planting bulbs, preparing them for their blossoming in the spring. And even as she aged and got near to her own death, she, did, she continued to do this, uh, wanting these plants to bloom even after she had passed on. Well, after Catherine's death, her husband, E.B. White, himself a well-known author, wrote of her gardening habit these words. As the years went by and age overtook her, there was something comical yet touching in her bedraggled appearance on this awesome occasion. The small hunched-over figure, her studied absorption in the implausible notion that there would be yet another spring, oblivious to the ending of her own days, which she knew perfectly well was near at hand, sitting there with her detailed chart under those dark skies in the dying October, calmly plotting the resurrection. He said that Catherine was a member of the resurrection conspiracy, the company of those who plant seeds of hope under the dark skies of grief and oppression. I think that's exactly what Christians should be. Because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, we can be confident that, implausible as it may seem, there will be yet another spring. Spring is just around the corner. I don't know if you felt the same way I have, just looking out the window and trying to avoid being outside and just looking at the gray skies, and it's always cold and so ready for spring, right? And then that silly groundhog comes out and 
gives us more winter. And then on the first day of spring, we get the biggest snow that we've had all year. Like, what in the world? This is some kind of cruel joke, right? So I don't know if you felt like I have, but like, there's got to be spring around the corner. There's got to be another spring coming. Maybe we're almost getting there. We're seeing glimpses of it. The tree in my backyard has, that's been dead and just gnarled sticks all winter long is starting to get these little bitty buds on it that I know that within just a couple of weeks are going to be these little beautiful white sprouts and then soon it'll be back in full bloom again. Where are you tempted to despair? To believe that you know the ending of your story and you've let hope fade. Where in your life do you need to apply the hope of Easter, the hope of another spring? What obstacles or trials do you believe can never be overcome? What sins or burdens in your life can you scarcely imagine defeating? And how could a confident faith in the overcoming grace of the risen, living Savior change your outlook on those areas where despair is creeping in? I think just as these readers of this letter in the first century were suffering and enduring hardship, and Peter brought to them this message of Easter, the living hope of the risen Christ, the, the promise of this future inheritance that's coming, that's being guarded, that's going to be revealed. I think just as it gave them endurance, it gave them strength for another day, another cold winter, I think we can find the same kind of strength in the awareness of the, the living presence of Jesus with us and the knowledge of the future glory that He's preparing and guarding for us. So let's keep our eye on that in the midst of hardship. And don't forget that the ending of the story is good and glorious. Final thing I think we see in these verses is that Easter fuels our love for Jesus. The resurrection of Christ and the living hope that He's caused us to be born again to fuel our love for Him and increase our capacity to know and love and cherish and follow and value Him and the things that are pleasing to Him. Look in verse 8. He says, Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. So Peter's writing here to second generation Christians, if you will. His readers were not there when Jesus rose from the dead and did not have the opportunity, as Peter did, to see him face to face. So he's already, in, later in the first century, writing to Christians who never saw Jesus with their own eyes. You have not seen him, and yet you love him. Now this sounds a little crazy, doesn't it? How can you love someone that you can't see? I think that part of the answer is that if you know what to look for, you can see Jesus and his resurrection everywhere. You can see him everywhere. In every marriage that journeys to the brink of collapse and returns to life through forgiveness and love. In every single mom who somehow manages to keep her kids fed, clothed in school while she works to provide a place to stay. In every addict who finds freedom from his bondage. In every sinner who repents 
and confesses and asks for forgiveness from someone that he's wronged, even in the winter frozen earth as it absorbs the early rains of spring and returns to life again. And the more you see him, the more you love him. He's everywhere. He's at work all around us. He's at work within us. But we've got to train our eyes. We've got to train our perspective to look for resurrection. So yeah, I haven't seen Jesus face to face, but I've seen Him at work. I've seen what He does. I've seen the restoration and the forgiveness and the new life reality that He brings. Where do you see Him? Look around you, around your life, your family, your friends, your neighborhood, your world. Where can you see Jesus at work? Where can you spot glimpses of the resurrection in your life? I know they're there. Just got to look for Him. So though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Our joy grows. Our sense of the wonder and glory of God and this inheritance He's, he's storing up for us grows as we, as we look for Him at work and as we grow in love for Him. And the end result of all this, the very last phrase, verse 9, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. The living hope of Easter secures the reality of this future glory. And it secures the reality of Jesus' presence in our lives now. This resurrection life and hope that is at work all around us if we'll just train our eyes to see it. It's sure. You will obtain the outcome of your faith, which is this full, complete, and final salvation of your souls. Faith is hard. Cynicism is easy. Bitterness is easy. Doubt and unbelief are easy. It's not always the most natural thing to believe, to believe what we can't see, to cling to an invisible hope. It's not only hard, it also seems totally crazy to those who don't have eyes to see. The world thinks we are completely bananas for believing this stuff. I think you probably know that. This sounds like a fairy tale. It sounds like nonsense, but you know what? I'm okay with that. I'm okay with looking a little crazy if it means that at the last time when it gets here and Jesus reveals himself again in the flesh, that I will obtain the outcome of my faith, the salvation of my soul, I'm okay with that. It's worth it. Looking a little goofy to our empirical evidence-minded culture, actually more and more denial of even absolute truth whatsoever culture, if it looks a little crazy and out of step with the world around us, that's okay. Because the outcome of this is salvation. The outcome of this is the presence of God forever. It's life and joy and peace and fullness that we can scarcely even fathom. It's worth it. It's worth enduring the seasons of suffering. It's worth fighting for a perspective that's trained on resurrection. 
because it leads to an imperishable, undefiled, unfading inheritance in the glorious presence of God. Easter provides resurrection grace to restore our hope. And friends, we've got to have hope. We've got to cling to hope. We don't want to be like those inmates on death row who just lose all sense of a light, all sense of there being any hope for change. That's not where we are. That's not the reality that we're in. And through faith in Jesus Christ, hope is always alive. And the sure hope of this future glory can't be done away with. I want to close by reading to you from the book of Revelation. Great, glorious vision that God gave to the Apostle John, which depicts the kingdom of God in its fullness. The final state of the universe where all of this is headed. So I'm going to read to you from Revelation 21 and 22, and I want to challenge you to dare to believe that this is true. To dare to believe that Jesus has truly risen from the dead, that his resurrection has truly secured for you an inheritance that will never fade, and that this is really going to be the experience of all those who in this time are trusting in Christ for salvation. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. And then in, verse, in chapter 22, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Let's pray.